0: Welcome to Capitalize Your Finances, the podcast that's your ultimate guide to mastering personal finances and unlocking the secrets of entrepreneurship. Each week, we dive into the world of personal finance and business development and have fascinating conversations with industry experts, seasoned entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who share their insights, strategies, and stories to help you get ahead in life. Whether you're a seasoned entrepreneur looking to scale your business or someone just starting out on your financial path, this podcast is your go-to resource for inspiration and actionable insights.
1: Welcome back to Capitalize Your Finances. As always, I'm your host, Christopher A. Pontiotis, who's the Cap in Capitalize. And today we have a very special guest, a rather unique guest by the name of Aaron Thomas. And Aaron Thomas is an uh, attorney out of Georgia. And he's got a very unique background, a very unique practice niche. And the reason why you're going to want to listen to this guy, uh, if you are thinking about getting married or you are already happily married, it's going to be one of these things that you're going to want to stick around and get his award-winning advice on prenups, postnups, and everything in between. So with that, Aaron, welcome to Capitalize Your Finances.
2: Thanks for having me, Chris. It's, It's great to be here.
1: And, uh, you know, obviously we had some technological issues before, so I appreciate your your patience in advance. And, you know, before we get into the crux of today's episode, I want you to give our listeners, as well as myself, because we hardly know each other, a brief background about how you got into the world of law.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was one of those people who, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was a little kid. I didn't really know what area I would end up in. Um, but I kind of always knew that I wanted to go to law school. Uh, I think I kind of assumed that I would get out and work for, you know, the biggest, baddest firm in New York City that I could find. Um, And after spending a summer doing that, I realized that would not be for me. Um, Ended up, uh, you know, going to uh, in-house at Habitat for Humanity, so I did the nonprofit thing for a little bit, and then realized I wanted to be in the courtroom. So I was a public defender for three years, and then I got recruited into uh, a family law firm, uh, which is kind of my, my entrance into, you know, divorce, custody, child support, and all things prenups and postnups, um, and, you know, kind of the, the story led from there.
1: And, and for you, was there a, a need, like, how, how did you get to that niche of marital law, and specifically prenups and postnups, which we'll get into later on in the show?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, when I started doing family law, um, I was not married myself. Um, my parents are still together. They, they just celebrated 57 years together. So, um, uh, I didn't really know anything about divorce. Most of my friends hadn't even been married yet, much less, you know, had they been divorced. And so, um, you know, getting into this family law firm was really my first exposure to anything divorce. And, uh, it really blew my mind, Chris. I mean, I, I had a general sense that, okay, if things don't work out, you, you go to some lawyers and you, you kind of split everything 50-50 and, you know, it's easy peasy. That's how it works. And obviously nothing could be further from the truth. Um, you know, I saw some of the messiest situations um, and really a lot of what I saw was people who were going through a divorce. And it was the first time that they really kind of understood the financial implications of getting married in the first place. Um, And so it just struck me that so many people needed kind of an education on, you know, what is, you know, we think about marriage as this romantic relationship, but what are the legal and financial implications of getting married? And um, I just realized that so many people need to know what it is they're signing up for on the front end, number one. And then number two, I think that there's a real need for people to uh, kind of customize that contract if you will, that marital contract um, right now, you know, I, I like to say that everybody's got a prenup. If you get married, you either write your own or you are accepting what I call the default prenup, which is the laws of the state that you happen to live in. Um, and in today's world, I find that kind of the one size fits all default, you know, uh, marital contract that most people sign Doesn't fit a lot of modern couples situations.
1: Sure. Well, and I I, I'm curious too. how did you land with the name prenups.com? And also, did did you have to buy that from someone or was that just readily available? Because I feel like that's a pretty catchy and in popular website name.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I wish it was just readily available for, you know, $9.99 or whatever <laughs> on, uh, on, on GoDaddy or, you know, wherever you get your websites. Uh, no, I had to um, I had to negotiate the purchase of that URL. It probably took me over a year to kind of bite the bullet and, and pay for it. But um, it was important enough. I wanted it to be short and catchy and make it as easy as possible for, for people to find me. So, yeah, that was a purchase.
1: Well, and, and I'm sure it has been a phenomenal return on your investment. And, and now that we have a little bit of a background of who you are, how you got into it, I, I really just want to jump in. And, you know, the most common prenups that I see, uh, not only with my practice, but just out in the open, talking to other professionals, are the ones that have been put in place for couples that have met later in life. And this makes total sense to me, especially if you've built your separate lives, it gets to a point where, let's say, both are successful financially. And then on top of that, it's just an absolute headache to combine a lot of things because you can't teach an old dog new tricks in many cases. Um, But another example I, I also see that makes sense is celebrities and athletes that we've worked with where, let's face it, someone comes in and is bringing a lot financially to the table and relatively speaking, the other person doesn't, okay? That doesn't mean that they're a better or worse person, but let's face it, if one person is a, I don't know, an everyday employee, and then the other person is like The Rock or Oprah, that's going to be a, a huge difference in the financial side of things. But the one area I, I, I've i never really understood, and I wanted to pick your brain on this, is when people from from both sides get a prenup, but they essentially have nothing that they're bringing to the table financially. And so from your perspective, what is the point of that scenario? Because again, if you don't have anything before you got married at that point, you know, isn't it, isn't it kind of worthless?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I mean, I think a lot of people can certainly grasp The first two examples that you're giving, where you want a prenup to protect your premarital assets, right? You're bringing something into the relationship. Um, It doesn't make sense to combine all of your accounts and, you know, your entire, you know, financial estate. um, And you want to protect what you have coming in. I think one of the biggest underrated benefits of a prenuptial agreement is um, essentially taking the possibility of a messy divorce off the table. Um, And particularly in today's day and age, you know, I mean, the the divorce rate is, you know, north of 40%. And I think a lot of today's couples are the children of the people who lived in that 50% divorce rate of the 1980s, when we kind of really peaked as a country in divorce rates, and they watched their parents go through a year, a year and a half, two years of divorce litigation where they may have spent tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, 20%, 25% of their net worth on divorce litigation, on the lawyers, on the financial experts, on the cost of the actual litigation. And they're saying, no way do I want that to be me, you know? And so we're going to sign a contract that basically takes our potential future divorce out of, hopefully we don't need it, but it takes that potential messy divorce out of the courtroom and puts the terms back in your hands. And so for that young couple, that's in their twenties, maybe they're not bringing, you know, a ton in, Um, you know, what makes divorce messy and expensive a lot of time is not necessarily the money that you're bringing into the marriage, but what you accumulate, it's the fight over what you accumulate during the marriage itself, you know? And so couples have to ask, you know, is every dollar, that either of us earns, is that all in one pot? Are we considering all of that? You know, we're just gonna do 50-50 on everything or are we gonna say everything is joint except for our retirement accounts or everything is joint except for, you know, our potential future inheritance and our cars. And so I think what a prenup does is allows people to classify, this is mine, this is yours and this is ours and be clear about that rather than just kind of operate on assumptions because what I saw in my divorce work was people would come into my office after a 10, 15, 20-year marriage, and they would say, what do you mean she wants half of my retirement? That's my retirement. I earned it. I'm the only one who contributed to that. Or what do you mean he wants 50% of the house that I paid the mortgage for every month for the past 10 years? And I would have to explain to mm-hmm. you know these clients that, After the date that you're married, every single dollar that either of you earns is considered marital money that's up for division. And so if you want that to be, you know, not the case for any reason, maybe, you know, you're a a safe investor and your spouse is a risky investor and you just want to keep your investments separate. You want to keep your retirements separate because you have different saving rates when it comes to retirement. That's something you can accomplish in uh, a prenup by just kind of saying all right, whatever I put in my name will belong to me, whatever you put in your name belongs to you, and whatever we put in joint names belongs to the two of us. Uh, and same thing goes for debts. We can kind of split debts up according to categories that make sense for us rather than kind of accepting the default which is everything, you know, is kind of thrown into one pot together.
1: So, I have a couple questions on top of that. So, for for me, and again, you know, enlighten me on this. When you were saying all those things, that strikes me more of like a postnuptial agreement, right? Instead of a prenup, because with a prenup, from my understanding, it's everything before you've been married, and then postnup is everything at the day after and, and onward. And so, would a prenup still even apply to that situation? Like, let's say you have two people come into the marriage, they are just dead broke, but they have all of this potential. And so, if that's the case, Then from the day of marriage till, you know, the day of of divorce, obviously that's a ton of, um, added net worth and income, all of those things. But before that, the, the prenup, I'm still stuck on that where it, it's not really, it's pretty easy to divide by zero. Um, so, so is that more of the post-nup importance?
2: Yeah, so great question. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people um, don't know about prenups is that they can address the ownership of assets that are in the future, things that don't even exist yet, right? So mm-hmm. the terms prenup and postnup okay. really just apply to when you sign the agreement. A prenup is signed prior to your marriage date, a postnup is signed after your marriage date, but a prenup can um, certainly address assets that you acquire in the future, and so what a lot of people will do is we call them title-based prenups, meaning the way that you title something is the way that it's going to be owned. Um, a lot of people, you know, I think maybe don't grasp that even if you keep things separate. So let's say you come into your your marriage with um, a four hundred one k, and it's got a certain amount of money, and you say, okay, I had that four hundred one k we got married. I'm the only one contributing to it. I'm contributing to it only with funds that, that I earned. That should be my separate property. And the truth is, as soon as you put $1 in that retirement account after the date of the marriage, you have commingled that account in the eyes of the law. And it's no longer just your separate mm-hmm. property. And so um, you can have a prenup, and this is very, very common uh, in prenups, that says anything that's in my name will belong to me, will be considered my separate property. Anything that's in your name will be considered your separate property. And anything that we choose to put in joint names will be considered our joint property, our marital property. And that's what would be divided 50-50 if anything happened to our marriage. And that way, you don't have an argument where, you know, you've been married 10 years and you say, but wait a minute, I had some money in my 401K before we got married. Shouldn't I get that back, you know, if we split? And those people find themselves in a scenario where, okay, now you've got to hire a forensic accountant to go back and try to piece together how much of the growth in your retirement account is due to the contributions made during the marriage and how much of that is the growth of what you had coming into the marriage. And so, um, yeah, for the people who have zero coming in, they can still decide that we're going to opt out of the kind of default system, which is everything is marital no questions asked regardless of how things are titled and we're going to do something that is more intuitive for most couples which is the ownership of our assets and debts is going to be classified by the way that we title them
1: oh so, and i i didn't know that about the prenup and postnup um as far as like when it's signed so i learned I, I learned that so that makes all the sense in the world that, that also brings up another question though and this goes back to the examples earlier of let's say uh you know I'm just going to use me and my wife. I mean, we we combine everything, but let's say that I'm a super aggressive saver and she's not, or I'm a, a super conservative investor, she's not, whatever the case may be. And if you're you're separating all of these things out, I guess my thing, and, and, and maybe I'm just old school, but like what's even the point of getting married if it's just all separate, especially if you're coming into it kind of on level playing fields let's let's remove the obvious of when you're older later in life you found your 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 rest of life partner and you've built up 30 years of a, of a net worth
2: yeah 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 no great question um and i think that i think that i am kind of in that scenario that you're talking about where Uh, Me and my wife came in and we're kind of equal levels, you know, in terms of net worth. And we wanted to combine everything. Uh, I think what ends up working for most couples is not um, all or nothing. Right. You know, some couples certainly are like, we're going to get married, but we're going to keep everything separate. And maybe they're older in life and that makes sense for them. That's easier for them. Some people come and they say, we're going to combine everything. You know, we're going to put everything in one pile and, and we're in this, you know, together, you know, down to the to the last dollar, the last dime. I think what works for a lot of couples is a combination. And so, you know, I'll give you the example of, you know, what me and my wife do is all of the income that comes into our household initially goes into a joint bank account that is titled in both of our names. But we each get an allotment or an allowance from that account each month that goes into our separate accounts. And we are each allowed to do whatever we want with our separate money. So if one of us is a spender and the other one is a saver, you know, one of us can spend every last dollar that we get from our kind of monthly allowance, if you will, and the other one can save that money, and they get the benefit of holding on to that savings if, you know, the marriage were to come to an end, whereas a couple without a prenup, if one of them is kind of saving all of their money and the other one's spending all of the money, they still split the saver's money at the end of the day because the court is going to consider everything 100% marital. Um other that's what i call the inside out plan where all the income goes into a joint account and then each spouse gets an allotment that goes into their separate account and that's also i think just good so that each spouse has the ability to do some spending without oversight of their spouse or without having to argue over kind of some of the more minor expenses you know an example i like to give is um you know my wife is you know she likes to eat out for lunch um and so Uh, You know, in my eyes that can I'm a brown bagger, so that can add up. You know, I like to save that money. Um, And so, you know, she would go spend on that. If that were coming out of the joint account, that might drive me crazy to see 15, 20 bucks coming out of the out of the account every every day. But because that's coming out of her separate account, she can do that. And I have no say I don't even have visibility over it at this on the same token. I am the type of person where I'm going to go get the new the new phone every year when it comes out. There's nothing wrong with my old phone. I may not even be able to tell you what the you know, what the new functions are of, of the newest phone. But I just I just want the new phone. She would never spend her money on that. That looks like a total waste to her. So like her seeing that coming out of the bank account would drive her crazy. And at the end of the day, we might both be spending the exact same amount of money, but it's our differing financial habits that would drive each other crazy. And we take that off the table. By having some separate spending money altogether. The other alternative that a lot of couples will use is what I call the outside in plan, where all of your income goes into your separately titled bank account and then each spouse contributes to the joint bank account to pay for the joint bills. Sometimes couples will contribute 50 50. Um, a lot of couples find it good to contribute kind of pro rata, proportionately with their income so that. Um, you know, one thing I say is you can't have two spouses living in the same household, but in different socioeconomic brackets, right? That's a recipe for disaster. That's the pitfall that I think some couples who keep everything totally separate fall into is, you know, if you're going, you can't go Dutch for life. You know, you can't go 50 50 on the mortgage. If one of you is making four times what the other one is and not have some resentment build up in that relationship and so i think that there is a there is a happy middle ground where you're still building uh an estate together as a married couple you are still having maybe the majority of your finances are in the hours column but you also have some of your own spending money you have some of your own money that you can save with or you can choose to do the riskier investments with if your spouse is not on board with those um rather than having to get exactly on the same page with every dollar that comes out of your accounts
1: and we'll get into going Dutch for the rest of your life later on in the episode, because I, I want to come back to that. But I, I did have a question for you. And actually, before I get into the question, I, I just want to say everything you said about outside in, inside out, it makes total sense. Um, I, I may come back to you later in the episode or even afterwards and, uh, and and not not butt heads, but positively rub shoulders with you on that one, because I'm thinking from a planning standpoint, there are pros and cons, obviously with everything. But I I wanted to ask you, this is a little bit more surface level, but I'm just curious, what are some of the most common financial arrangements that you see married couples have in in terms of their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that for um, couples that are coming in in their 20s, it is much easier for them to Uh, go inside out and to kind of combine their finances because they are starting from scratch. Um, the, The issue that I see is that those couples, you know, the couples who are getting married in early 20s are becoming more and more rare. So the average age of a first marriage has been steadily increasing over the past, say, 50 to 60 years. So, you know, I'll use like my parents' generation as an example. You know, my parents got married in in the 1960s. And the average couple back then that was getting married was they were age 21 on average. Um each spouse was was average age 21. And they were like they were a financial blank slate. You know, the average couple getting back back then, they may have one bank account between the two of them. They've got they've got no mortgage. 401ks hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, Credit cards were just coming around in the 1960s, so it was unlikely that either spouse would have one. Um, They had no equity in any kind of real estate. Um, They likely, you know, maybe they had one car between the two of them. So they were a complete blank slate. You know, if they're a business, they're a startup in your garage, you know, from complete scratch. And it makes sense for them to just throw everything in one bank account. You know, you often had one earner in the household. And you contrast that with the average couple Mm. today. The average couple today is getting married, first marriage. At age 30 instead of 21, and that couple is likely to have. They're likely to have four to five bank accounts each, three to four credit cards each, uh, a, a retirement account or two. They probably changed jobs already, and maybe they didn't roll over the first one, so they've got they've got some retirement assets. They may have some equity in a condo. They're likely to each have their own vehicles. Um, they could have tens of thousands in student loans, or sometimes six figures of student loans. Right, um, and maybe more of importantly than all of the assets and debts. They've also, you know, not like the 60s, because they're not going from their parents' house to their marital house. They've got a decade of living on their own where they have built up their own financial habits. That may be the more important Hmm. difference than the net worth difference is their financial habits difference. And trying to combine all of that into one pot, um, if they're a business, it's like a corporate merger in terms of complexity. You know, to try to get on the same page about all of their spending habits, all of their saving habits, how they deal with credit, you know, what their feelings are about debt. And so, um, you know, you wouldn't enter a business partnership, you know, without having some kind of, you know, serious conversations about what is the financial structure going to be. I look at marriage as a financial partnership. It deserves some serious conversations about how are we going to do this while still avoiding you know, some of the common arguments that people have in marriage. And let's face it, one of the number one, if not the top thing that married couples argue about is money. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much writing on getting aligned from the very beginning, um, when it comes to your finances and, you know, you wouldn't think about it, but a prenup can be an important financial tool as part of that process of making sure that you're aligned in terms of, you know, how is the money going to flow through our bank accounts? Um, what's mine, what's yours, what's ours. Uh, it doesn't just deal with what happens in divorce. It can also talk about, you know, what you're how your money is going to flow during the marriage itself. You know, are you going to do inside out, are you can do outside in, um, you know, we'll often put in kind of ongoing disclosure requirements, um, in terms of making sure that you both have visibility into each other's finances during the marriage itself. Um, and so. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of things that today's couples who are getting married later in life with more complex finances um, have to deal with that you know the, the couple in their early twenties um, may not be thinking about.
0: Capitalizers, this episode is sponsored by the best-selling book "Capitalize Your Finances," the how-to framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. Regardless of where you're at in your financial life, whether you're just beginning to express interest and commitment to your personal finances, at the pinnacle of your career, winding down into retirement, or thinking about your legacy for future generations, this book walks you through every step of the way so you can succeed on your terms and with your own values and passions guiding you. After reading this book, you will officially have Christopher A. Panayotu, The Cap in Capitalize, in your back pocket, guiding you in detail through every step of the way so that you can take charge of your finances, not the other way around. Head on over to Amazon.com today and start capitalizing your finances to the fullest with this incredible book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. And now, back to the episode.
1: Well and, and and again that makes sense if, if you're if you're married in your early twenties, you're both starting from ground zero. It it like you said, it's pretty cut and dry. You get to your thirties, I also can see I've seen both sides. I mean, I've met people that are in their thirties that don't have a pot to piss in, and then I've met people that, you know, obviously have 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 uh jumped on the bandwagon financially speaking and they understand where they need to go. And then obviously it compounds in forties, fifties, sixties. Um, I, I want to transition to that Dutch comment earlier. Okay. And and I've been I've been actually dying to ask you this, and full disclosure to each their own. Um, I'm I'm definitely not here to judge, you do whatever you want to do. I've seen a couple circumstances where each person not only keeps everything separate financially they don't have a clue what is going on with the other person. And as a financial planner, that could be one of my worst nightmares as it's like hurting cats. And obviously my listeners know how I feel about cats. So my question is to you, do you see that often? And, And in that case, and I know I asked it earlier, but for that specific purpose, What's even the point of getting married? Because if you're not going to do any combination of anything, you kind of just live your separate lives, but I guess you're married on paper. Do you see what what I mean? Like, that can't be a recipe for success in my eyes, because I've seen it.
2: I'm 100% on board with you there, Chris, because that is, in my view, not only is it a, a recipe for disaster and potential arguments during the marriage itself but that kind of financial roommates situation is what really makes mm. for some of the messiest divorces that I have seen um, you know couples who kind of keep their lives um, separate uh, financially um, especially if they don't have a prenup are in for the biggest shock of their lives or um, particularly when they go through a divorce. I mean, you know, and I was talking earlier about couple, you know, people who come in and they say, what do you mean she wants half of my retirement? What do you mean, you know, I've got to split the assets that are in my name only. I think what a lot of these couples don't realize is, number one, the court is not going to honor that kind of financial roommate situation. The court is still, even if you kept everything in your own bank accounts, the court is still going to view every single dollar that either of you have as marital money. So the couple who are, keeping their finances separate from each other and a secret from each other. um, You're actually hiding your spouse's own money from them. (laughs) Legally, all of that money is considered to be joint marital money. And so what good does it do to hide that from each other and not discuss it when You know, there's so many advantages to kind of coming together, um, both, I'm sure, as you've seen in your career from a financial planning standpoint, but also just from operating the household. You know, you could have a situation where both spouses could be maxing out their 401ks if they looked at their money from a joint perspective, but because one spouse earns a little bit less, they're not saving for the 401k because they're worried about how much money they're going to have left over after those deductions are taken out of their paycheck. And so, you know, they're prioritizing, you know, kind of their own finances at the expense of the household finances, if you get what I'm saying there, Chris.
1: I I do. And it's it's it is such a pain in the ass. I mean, like I it, it is it is arguably one of the worst things in the industry as far as dealing with it. When you have a couple come in. And or hop on Zoom or whatever the case is, and I ask them, like the bare bones basic question of what your expenses are in net income per month. When you've got a couple that is on a united front, right, they're married, they're all in, it is so easy because it's the conversation of, hey, this is what we're making, this is what our expenses. Like it's not even a question of, okay, well, you know, I'm spending this, and my wife or husband is spending this, and... And, and it's just this convoluted... It's like the Da Vinci Code, except no one's ever going to crack it. And then when you've got people that come in and both parties kind of look at each other like, well, do you want to go first on like what you're spending? And then the other party says it. And then they kind of look at each other like, you make this much." It blows my brains out. I mean, one, I might be a little uh, biased here in the fact that in, in my wife and my household... Um, Financially speaking, I, I tend to quarterback things just big kind of because of my job. And then she quarterbacks all the healthcare things because she's a, um, a nurse practitioner and midwife. Like that is her industry and she gets it. We always know what's going on with each other, but, or not with each, of course, with each other, but with either side of the aisle, whether it's financially or health or, or estate, whatever the case may be. But I I almost put a timer on when, and I'm not trying to go on this tangent, but I I really needed to get this out. So, you know, if you need to send me a bill for this venting session, Aaron, I I, I will totally pay it. But it's one of those things where I I set a metaphoric timer in my head of going, okay, when is this relationship going to be done? Because it, 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 there's no way that you can go through life like that. Cause then it's not, it's not even a marriage, right? Like marriage should be binding in some way shape or form it's it's not like you know in my mind in, in, and I want to get your opinion on this you don't kind of get married that's like saying you're kind of pregnant like trust me that that is not how it works you know um uh, I mean I mean what's your take on that
2: my take is that getting married is a financial partnership certainly it is many other things but it is yes. absolutely a yes. financial partnership, whether you like it or not, and you have to treat it as such. And you simply wouldn't enter any financial partnership without knowing what the books look like on the other side of the aisle. You wouldn't do a a merger with another business without knowing what the financials of that business were. And the same thing goes for a marriage. You shouldn't get married without knowing what the finances of your partner look like. You know, one of the, and I think that's one of the big reasons why sure. in all 50 States for a prenup to be enforceable, each spouse has to disclose all of their assets and debts to the other spouse. Um, and, you know, in my work, a lot of times i found that that is the first time that couples have gotten that granular in terms of sharing their finances with one another is when they're going through this process. And, like, you and I both work in the financial space, so we're talking money early and often, right? You know, that, that blows our minds. But I think yeah. some people, they'd be blown away to know how – You know, how many couples get that far in their relationship without having, you know, the serious money talks, you know, whether it's taboo or maybe there's some shame involved in it or people are just kind of, you know, secretive. But going through the prenup process um, kind of forces each couple to kind of disclose all their assets. We literally prepare a net worth statement for each spouse and we attach it to the back of the agreement. So there's no question that every account has been disclosed. Every debt has been disclosed. You know, there's, it's a no judgment zone. This is where we are, you know, and now we can, we've got this down on paper in black and white, and now we can look about how we're going to merge our lives, our financial lives and move forward as a couple and talk about, you know, what is important to us. And then, you know, what a lot of couples find is that makes a good jumping off point to, you know, one thing that will, you know, one thing that will put in some of these agreements is what I call the annual shareholders meeting. Right. So if we're if we're continuing down this analogy of, of the partnership, you know, of your marriage, then yeah. an annual shareholders meeting means, you know, um, that you come together and, you know, maybe it's an annual thing. Maybe it's a quarterly thing. And you sit down and you share what the finances look like and get on the same page. You know, what were the big surprises from this past year? Was there anything that we didn't plan for? Can we use that information to plan for the upcoming year? You know, an example, my wife and I, we have a rule where, you know, we decided that a value of ours is travel. We want to make sure that we set aside some of our money for travel. So we, we came up with a rule that says 5% of all the income that comes into the household gets set aside for a travel fund. And that way, whenever we want to take a trip, the money's there. And the more that we earn, the more that we could spend on our travel. And that's something that we decided was going to be a value for other people. It's going to be, you know, saving for a house or saving for the new baby um, but kind of having these meetings where you can come together and exchange the finances is important because another recommendation that we make is appointing a CFO of your household. You are the CFO of your household the same way that I am in mine, probably because of our jobs, you know, and but sure, the right. important distinction there is the CFO. It doesn't mean you get to make all of the decisions with the money, right? The CFO has the responsibility of reporting back to the shareholders, reporting back to the company or your spouse in this example about what's going on with the finances and getting the approval of everyone so that you can make the financial decisions with full buy-in of the partnership. And I think when people kind of look at it this way, it's a lot easier to understand. And certainly, you know, you would never want to be in a situation where, there's this, you know, wall of secrecy in your household when it comes to the finances. So, um, you know, I think kind of going through this process is really about how do we merge our finances in, you know, a respectful manner and, you know, any good partnership agreement worth the paper it's written on is going to have a termination clause that says what happens if, you know, you know, a partner leaves a business, you're going to have some clause in the, in the partnership documents that say what happens then. And you would do the same thing in your marital partnership where you spell out, you know, what happens, but that's not the purpose of the partnership agreement. You want you want the partnership to be successful, but you're also kind of protecting against, right. you know, what is a reality for many, many, you know, too many couples today, which is the partnership is going to come to an end. Can we agree what's fair while we're on good terms, just like you would do in a business partnership? Can we agree so that we don't end up spending a bunch of money on litigation down the line if – God forbid you know this partnership our marriage comes to an end um, and then also mm. put in place things that will hopefully make this partnership successful in the long run
1: when it, and there there's so much to unpack there um, the first thing actually that came to my mind early on when you were describing this is um, I know people say hey no judgment I'm gonna I'm gonna call BS on that like if, if I mean, my wife and I came in basically the exact same. But, you know, let's face it. If let's let's say that I was in my 40s and, you know, I saved up and I was worth, I don't know, X, Y, Z, hundreds of thousands or even millions. And then you're marrying someone. But then that first meeting, right, the, the, the reveal, if you will, of finance, you look across and your partner doesn't have a, a pot to piss in. You are going to second guess things. Because I don't know about you, um, and I've talked about this a lot on my show, and my my listeners know this, I'm a big believer in mental models. So you take uh, habits of one aspect of your life, and then you copy those into other aspects of your life. So for example, if one is regimented in their fitness, they can take that uh, regiment, and they can uh, reinvest that model into their business, and their finances, and their relationship, etc. Well, if they're god-awful with their money, Chances are they're going to be god-awful in X, Y, Z. And you do second-guess a lot of those things. And another thing I thought of, and and I'm sure you deal with this because, similar to me, you've you've dealt with athletes and people of of higher net worth. I always feel really bad for um, clients that are coming into a marriage, and let's say they've built up a business and they have become very successful financially, in, in business wise and all that, because the pool suddenly got a whole heck of a lot smaller because you're never really going to know if people are going to be with you for you or with you for what you have. Do you, do you get that sense a lot from, from some of your celebrities and athletes and higher end clients that you work with?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, just to touch on your earlier point, I have to comment on, you know, you talking about kind of like habits transferring from one area to another. I mean, that to me is why I am such a big proponent for transparency on the front end with your finances for that exact same reason. If you are, if you do not have transparency and communication around the finances of your household, that same secrecy and lack of communication is inevitably going to bleed over into other parts of your relationship, right? If you can't be, if you can't tell me what's in your bank account, you know, what other secrets are there out there? Um, but yeah, to talk about, you know, the, the athletes, I mean, I think a lot of that, a lot of that stuff comes out in the negotiations of a prenup. And to me, it is better to at least get these things out on the table at the beginning. You know, like you said, you know, if you're if you're going to it's much better to find out that the person you're dating has, you know, owes the IRS 50 grand in unpaid taxes before you are, you know, getting down on a knee to propose or, you know, even worse, walking down the aisle to get married. You know, um, and I've seen mm-hmm. cases where the first time somebody finds out is when the IRS is garnishing their joint tax refund the next year for one spouse's unpaid taxes from prior to the marriage. And you never want to find out, you know, that, that your spouse is bad with money when you are expecting Mm -hmm. your tax refund to get deposited in your account, or you are applying for a mortgage jointly. And that's the first time you find out that your spouse has, you know, or your loved one has horrible credit. Right. Um, But with the, with the athletes, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, saying, all right, you know, it's not going to be all or nothing. You know, the spouse who is the non-celebrity, who's the non-athlete, certainly you'd never want to draft something where that person is walking away with zero. But at the same time, you know, you've got an athlete where they're going to earn a lifetime's worth of money, perhaps, perhaps a couple generations worth of money in a period of four or five years. And should the person who is married to them for four years and then walks away, should they get half of that money? Or are they willing to, you know, sign something that says, okay, I'm going to walk away with something, but certainly I'm not going to take you know, half of your lifetime money, if I'm with you for three or four years? Um, And where does that line fall? You know, what, how much of that money gets shared? How much of that money ends up into the joint, the hours bucket versus the his or hers bucket? You know, that is going to be up to the individual couple to define. And it's not an easy question, right, to find out, you know, like how much of this money gets shared. But I think that is where the rubber hits a road hits the road for a lot of these relationships when someone says, I'm not signing anything unless I'm participating in fifty percent of everything that, you know, you've worked your life to kind of put yourself in a position to earn this money over the next three or four years. Um, and unfortunately, you know, that is the end of a lot of or maybe fortunately, you know, for the high earner, that is the end yeah. of, you know, the relationship.
1: Right. Well, yeah, I mean that is like the ultimate rock, paper, scissors of who decides what gets who gets what I, uh, I and I, I, I will say this. Thank God you do what you do, because I've had people in that situation ask, well, what do you think? Right. As far as like, what would you do in this situation? And I'm like, look, man, I, I I'm I'm a planner. I am not a divorce attorney. I'm not a prenuptial expert. You know, I will tell people, look, I'm an old school guy, right? I was I was born and raised a gentleman, and so you know, for, for me, my wife till death do us part. Very similar to your uh, to your um, parents that have been married forever. My my mom's parents were married for over 70 years,
2: um,
1: which is just mind blowing to me because their marriage lasted more than some people's lifetimes, and you know, there's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect anything. But I can tell you my grandparents, if if there was such a thing, they were rounding third and heading home. And so that's always been my bias towards things. But to your point, financially, it is tough. It's a very tough conversation uh, to have, but it is something extremely valuable. So I'm glad you have to answer the tough ones. And then I always tell people, I'm just the planner in the background. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you... Um, what questions should people be asking themselves before they get married and then if they're already married what questions can they ask and what can they do
2: yeah yeah absolutely um so couples that um are not married yet i think that you know the list of questions they should be asking each other is is very long you know certainly the basics are disclosing everything. And my recommendation is not just to discuss things verbally in terms of you know what your finances look like, but to actually put things down on paper. I think there is just a different level you know when you, of, of, of transparency when you have to say, okay, here are my accounts, here are my debts, here are my assets, here's everything that I've got it's right down on paper. and just sharing those documents with each other, Um, I find generates a lot of conversation by itself. Right. And so, um, you know, how did you get here? You know, um, what is your what is your philosophy on debt is a big one. You know, are you the kind of person who you pay off your credit cards in full every month? Are you the kind of person that carries debt? You know, are you someone who, you know, the only good debt is your mortgage? And you know, you don't want to and or are you someone who's like, you know, I want to leverage and try to You know, shoot for the moon here in terms of our finances or, you know, investment strategy or, you know, like, are you, you know, I'm index funds all the way or, you know, are you trying to put a certain percentage in, you know, high, high risk, high reward type investments. Um, And then from there, you know, it inevitably is going to go beyond just the numbers on the page, right? You're You're talking about people's psychology right and i'm sure as you know you know working with money it's not just about you know the numbers that are on the page and, and percentages but a lot of it is is between the ears you know how did you grow up what was money like in in your household you know what are your earliest memories of money did you grow up with wealth you know did you grow up with scarcity um and all of those kinds of things are going to inform how people's you know views are with money today even your willingness To discuss money issues openly with your partner is an indication of your kind of financial habits. Um, You know, are you somebody where money was taboo? You know, you had no idea what your parents made or, you know, uh, what their finances looked like. Or did you talk openly about money in your house? Are you somebody who's more kind of comfortable having these conversations about finances and investments? Um, And, you know, you you can't fix what you don't communicate about. And so kind of putting those things on the table... Um, you know, talking about you know what your values are going to be. You know, what do you see your financial future looking like? What age do you want to retire? What do you think is a good income? What do you think is a good savings rate? Um, all of those things should be discussed before marriage. And then for the couples who are already married, um, I think that a lot of a lot of couples need a financial reset. You know, at a bare minimum, you know if you if you are in that category. Of of people that that Chris is, the Chris that you're talking about, where you don't know what your spouse makes, you don't know what their assets are, you don't know what debts they have in their name. Um, please, please, for the love of God, put all of that down on paper and share it with your spouse today, because they're in, literally entitled to that to that information as your financial partner, as your legal partner, um, and then um, set up a schedule where you are going to continue to talk about you know, finances. And if you haven't in the past, it may need to be quarterly. It may need to be monthly until you can get financially aligned um, and kind of force these conversations because those couples are the type to go years and years without ever discussing money. And then one looks up and says, I thought we were good for retirement. Oh, I thought you were the one that was saving for retirement. And that's a very difficult conversation to have if you've let kind of the lack of communication create this divide over a course of years. So, um, you know, I think it really, it all comes back down to uh, transparency and communication.
1: Yeah, no, it totally does. Well, and that last, that last part of like, I thought you were saving. No, I thought you were saving. That just gave me, that didn't even give me a heart, like heartburn. That gave me a full blown (laughs) heart attack. Um, I, I, I could not, I could not begin to imagine, what that would be like if, if that ever happened in my household or or even our clients, I will say this, you know, even for like, for our listeners at home that are wondering this. So for my wife and I, we actually do our review, our own review at the end of the year. Now for clients, I meet with them on a quarterly basis. In some cases I'm even chatting with them monthly, um, you know, athletes, it's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit more custom just based on what you do. Um, from a seasonality standpoint, like for a football player, if you've made the playoffs, I'm not talking to you in January. Like (laughs) you've got other things on your mind. Um, but you know, all, all of an aside, um, making sure that you have that review point. I mean, Aaron, that is like, that could be the best piece of advice that you've given today. But That also segues into the last two questions we have before I let you ride off into the sunset that is uh, this lovely uh, Thursday in January. So my first question is, what is the one piece of advice you wish you had before starting your business?
2: Um... I think probably the, the one piece of advice that that I wish I had was to um, continue to seek out help uh, at every turn of your business. Um, you know, you're never going to get to a point where you know everything uh, and you've got it all figured out and you know all the steps uh, necessary to move forward in your business and you know, none of us can do this alone. You cannot be an expert in marketing and sales and do what you do and, you know, hiring and firing and HR and all of these things. And, you know, the sooner that you recognize that you're going to need help to grow your business to its highest potential, the better off you're going to be in the long run.
1: Awesome. And the last question before we close this thing out, what is the one piece of advice you wish you had earlier on regarding personal finance?
2: Oh gosh, uh, I mean, there <laughs> there's more than one, but um, you know, I mean, if I th- thought back to my college days, it would be, um, uh, you know, you're gonna have to pay back the debt on those credit cards. They seem to be handing out for free freshman year of college. Um, but um, I think that, uh, you know, I kind of like learned about, um, you know, paying myself first, uh, a little bit later in, um, in my financial journey. Um, you know, thankfully it wasn't too, too late, but you know, I didn't understand how powerful the concept of once you get paid, taking money immediately out of that check and setting it aside and living on what you have left rather than I think what, you know, a lot of people's default is, which is you save whatever you have left over at the end of the month. Um, and certainly that's not mm-hmm. nearly as effective of an approach as, uh, you know, paying yourself first or putting the money for savings aside before you do any spending.
1: Right. Yeah, no, not even close. Well, Aaron, I, I want to say, I, I really appreciated this conversation. I know in the middle of it, it got a little dicey, uh, but you'd obviously know it was from, uh, kindness from the bottom of my heart and, and, uh. You know, I would say we're going to have to have you back, but that means then a whole hell of a lot more people are probably going to be getting divorced. And so that could be a little bit risky. So if for whatever reason this is the last time we have you on the show, where can our followers go to support and follow and find you? Because you have a ton of value that this world needs.
2: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, Chris, and it's been great appearing on your show here. Um, listeners can find me um, at the website at prenups.com, and also we like to give out little tidbits of wisdom on social media. I'm prenupguy on Instagram and on TikTok um, and pretty much everywhere else that you, uh, that you can find social media.
1: Awesome. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for those of you that have listened throughout this entire episode, thank you so much for tuning into another wonderful episode of Capitalize Your Finances. If you guys are returning veterans, welcome back. If you are new to the show, first off, Welcome. Second off, if you have any questions about today's episode, you're interested in the books, the courses, you're interested in going back and looking at at more episodes, you're interested in maybe becoming a a guest on the show, head on over to CapitalizePodcast.com. Hit us up with the inquiry, snag a book, snag the courses. We're looking at that every single day. And if you have a personal financial question that you would like to have me answer, on one of my solo episodes or you have a question that you just want to run by me simply shoot me an email chris at capitalizeyourfinances.com i look at my email every single day and i will get back to you as fast as humanly possible as always i am your host chris fray poniotu the captain capitalize and until next time keep capitalizing
0: the information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Capitalize Your Finances, a separate entity from LPL Financial. Aaron Thomas and any other individual or company mentioned in this podcast are not affiliated with Capitalize Your or LPL Financial.